It is great to be with you. I'm very excited to be here speaking. Um, one of the reasons is I, I got to take my mask off, but you all are doing a great job. Thank you for keeping those on. And uh, it's a wonderful blessing that with all of the things going on in the pandemic, we're able to meet almost every single thing that I had on my out of town calendar since the beginning of March has been canceled. In fact, I think everything has been except for this. So way to go, Covenant College. I'm very glad to be here. Clap for yourselves. Thank you. Um, I've been here a few times and every time I'm here, I'm reminded of what a beautiful setting it is and what an amazing opportunity you have to study here with great faculty and staff and students. There are a lot of connections between where I'm from and where you are right now. So I'm the pastor at Christ Covenant Church. It's a PCA church just outside of Charlotte and your president Halverson went to Covenant Day School and his mom was the head of school there and now I have six kids at Covenant Day School. We're trying to set the record for most children from one family at the school at any one time. And uh, our current head of school, Mark Davis, was years ago the head of school at Chattanooga Christian down the mountain. And uh, now we have several students from our church who are here. I can't tell where you are, but if you're here, glad to see you. And then I also teach at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte and have a number of Covenant grads that are either working there now at the seminary or on staff at our church or in my classes. And so there are, there's a well-worn path here between uh, the top of the mountain and in Charlotte. I'm honored to be speaking in these three messages on true spirituality. Spirituality is a word that quickly conjures up in our minds a variety of definitions, certainly for those who are not Christians, but even for those of us who are Christians, we probably have almost as many definitions of spirituality and true spirituality as there are people here on the lawn. What do we mean? What are we seeking to explore in these three messages? Let me begin by reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. We have in this passage from 1 Corinthians 2 an idea of what the Bible means by spirituality. Sometimes it's helpful to define a term by thinking of what its opposite is. For many people, spirituality is spontaneity as opposed to planning. You think, boy, that was a real spiritual service. 
or she is a very spiritual person. Perhaps you think they're very spontaneous in their walk with the Lord as opposed to planned or Presbyterian, but I repeat myself. You may think that uh, it's loose as opposed to rigid, or perhaps spirituality means affectional as opposed to doctrinal. So some people are really into getting their theology right, and that's important, but then there are churches that are described as spiritual. If you were to visit a church and to come back saying, that was a very spiritual worship service, you would probably have in your mind something that is other than liturgical, theological, doctrinal. And we don't see any of those contrasts in the passage in 1 Corinthians 2, but rather we see that the opposite of spiritual is coming from the world. Verse 12, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Or in verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So really, quite simply, according to the Apostle Paul, true spirituality is that which comes from the Holy Spirit. And in particular, in this passage, he's thinking of those things that are known to the mind of God that in order to be received have to be given to us from the Spirit. For who knows a person or the mind of a person except the Spirit of that person? That's Paul's argument. And so the Spirit of God can know the things of God and reveal to us those things of God. The contrast then is if you are to walk in this path of true spirituality, you must have the Holy Spirit of Christ and so receive from the Spirit the things that are from God. Spiritual persons can receive spiritual things from the Holy Spirit. Unspiritual persons, the natural man, Paul says, receives his knowledge only from the world. I want to explore this theme of true spirituality, that Christian commitment which comes from the revelation of God's Spirit by looking with you over the course of these three lectures, just to remind you, chapel credit, over these three lectures by looking at three different Latin phrases. Yes, I know how to draw a crowd. We are going to look at three Latin phrases that come in and around the time of the Reformation and I think will help us to explore what true spirituality has looked like in the history of the church. And you'll find in these phrases some surprising relevance for our day. The first phrase comes out of the broader movement of pietism at the end of the 17th century. You may think of piety just simply as a synonym for godliness. There was a particular movement which originated in Germany and spilled over into the Netherlands and reached out and affected across the European continent called pietism. It was in many ways a response to ongoing enlightenment ideas. In Germany in particular, as some of the Lutheran orthodoxy became, in some people's minds at least, stale or overly philosophical, there arose a movement of pietism to try to infuse this sort of heart religion. 
And whether you've heard of pietism or not, almost for all of us, what we have probably experienced in the church and as Christians and even on this campus is owing to these strands of pietism, whether we realize it or not. Things that we take for granted, like small group Bible studies, groups of Christians huddling together at appropriate distances for prayer, uh, preaching that is filled with zeal and warmth and goes through verse by verse through the Bible. Many of these things owe their emphasis to pietism. Here's the particular phrase I want us to explore for a few minutes this morning. You may have heard it before. Semper reformanda. I'll give you the, the, the full extent of the phrase in just a minute, but that's the, the two-word slogan, semper reformanda, which you may have heard explained as meaning always reforming. It actually doesn't quite mean that. We'll come back to that in just a moment. I sometimes hear this phrase in the context of Christians who are wanting to radically change their theology. In our day, it may be in particular on issues of sexuality. Back when I was a, a part of a more mainline liberal denomination, I would often see this bandied about, semper reformanda, when somebody wanted to say, we really need to change our ideas and our convictions about human sexuality or about the definition of marriage, about what sort of sexual activity between what sorts of persons is considered appropriate. And so when a professor or a pastor or a blogger or a church would change its mind on perhaps the definition of marriage, we would have uh, all sorts of people saying, semper reformanda, always reforming. Aren't we simply courageously embodying the legacy of the Reformation and their insistence that the church should be always reforming? Doesn't the Spirit of God reveal new truths for a new day and the body of Christ is setting aside its stale orthodoxy? The risen Christ is teaching people things they had never seen before. Isn't that what Semper Reformanda is all about? Always innovating, always changing. Not exactly. While it's certainly true, as Paul will say elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, that we see through a glass dimly, and we always have to be open to correction. We'll come back to that in just a moment. The Latin phrase, semper reformanda, was not about changing for the sake of change, let alone reforming the church's confessional heritage to keep up with the times. In an insightful chapter by Michael Horton entitled Reformed and Always Reforming, he explains the origins of this phrase. The saying first appeared in 1674 in a devotional book by Jodocus van Lodenstein. I've never baptized any Jodocuses. That name seems to have passed us by. He was, however, in his day a key figure in the Second Dutch Reformation, which was sort of a pietism come to the Netherlands. He wanted to see members of the Dutch church which had seen its doctrine become reformed during the Reformation, continued to pursue Reformation, and here's the key, in their lives and in their practices. 
These movements of pietism in Germany and in the Netherlands were not arguing that the church had gotten its theology wrong, but rather that its theology had not made that long distance from the head down to the heart. So his concern and the concern behind this phrase was not doctrinal progressivism, but rather personal piety. So it's important to see the entirety of his phrase. If you've heard it before, you've heard just those two words, semper reformanda, but here's the whole phrase. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda, secundum verbi di, or dei. The church is reformed and always in need of being reformed according to the word of God. Notice three things about that Latin phrase. First, it begins, Ecclesia Reformata. So it begins by addressing the church that is reformed. And you could think of that as a capital R in the context of Dutch Calvinism in the Netherlands. He was thinking of churches, not only had come out of the Reformation, but churches that had embraced Calvinist reformed theology. In their context, it wouldn't have been the Westminster Confession or Catechism, but the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, Canons of Dort. So the phrase is addressing those who are reformed. It's addressing those who already share a confessional catechetical heritage. So it was not about trying to reinvent the doctrinal wheel. It was saying the church that is reformed. So we're speaking to people, uh, speaking to a place not dissimilar to Covenant College. The second thing to note is Sempor Reformanda, Ecclesia Reformata, the church that is reformed, Sempor Reformanda. Now, we often, if we've heard of it, say always reforming. The church is Sempor Reformanda, always reforming. But Horton points out that it's actually translated always being reformed, that the verb is passive, and the difference is consequential. I'm sure you're learning in your classes, in your various uh, English, whether, or you're taking Greek or Hebrew or any sort of language class, the importance of learning your verb tenses. It is amazing how significant it is in getting our theology right, and the difference here is consequential. If the phrase is simply always reforming, that sounds like revolution merely for the sake of revolution. Always innovating, always changing, always churning. The goal is simply change. But to take the verb passively, as we ought, suggests that we are adhering to a proper standard. We are always being reformed. And that passive construction also suggests there is an external agent operating upon the church, bringing about the necessary reform. That it isn't simply Christians saying, all right, we've been doing it this way for too long, now it's time to reform and change. But rather, there is something or someone bringing pressure to bear upon our lives and our institutions such that we will always be in the state of being reformed. Now the third part of the phrase, secundum verbi dei, 
that is, according to the Word of God. Now, that's absolutely essential. If we just say, semper reformanda, always reforming, always innovating, just changing without this aspect, we will miss entirely the point of Van Lodenstein's phrase. There is nothing reformed or reformational about changing the church's theology or the church's ethics in some ill-fated attempt to get on the quote, right side of history, or stay current just for the sake of being current. Rather, the motto, and this will be this afternoon's lecture, the motto in the Reformation, spinning out of the the Renaissance humanism, was not forward, but backward. That's the phrase we'll look at this afternoon, ad fontes, which means back to the sources. They were always wanting to say, we want to go back and find something and let that something that we find have a bearing on our lives. I know that all of these words, liberal, progressive, conservative, they all have taken on all sorts of different meanings and are loaded now with immediate political connotations. But if I tell somebody I'm a conservative, what I mean, I want to mean that in a in a Pauline, first and second Timothy sort of sense, guard the good deposit. There is something, there is a, an apostolic tradition that we are meaning to pass on. This gospel, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, what you have received from me, now I want you to teach others. He's handing it down to them, or he tells Timothy, what, what I gave to you, now you entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's what I mean by a conservative, someone who, who believes there is a deposit of inerrant, infallible truth that must be conserved, preserved, and passed on. Not in a way, as people say rather flippantly, well, you want to have your truth, your orthodoxy freeze-dried and shrink-wrapped. And No, of course not. That was the whole point of Van Lodenstein's phrase. Let this reformed truth be pressed upon us in our heads, in our hearts, such that we are always being reformed according to the Word of God. As Horton puts it in his chapter, the reformers, quote, wanted to recover something that had been lost, not to follow the winds of a rising modernity. The point of the phrase was that the church must constantly resubmit itself to the lordship of Christ as exercised in his word. It is at its best to remind us that to be reformed, to be reformed according to the word of God is not a one-time commitment, but a constant reassessment and recommitment. That's one of the great things about coming to a place like this for four years and pursuing education and thinking about deep things and having deep conversations and doing it all under the supremacy of Christ and His Word is that you get to explore this reassessment and recommitment, but it's never tearing down for the sake of tearing down. It's never revolution for the sake of revolution. It's always that we might be reassessed and we might be recommitted according to the Word of God. So listen to what Horton says, and I think this is absolutely critical for people in my context and people in your context. People who in in many cases come out of good churches and good traditions and good teaching. 
He says, many of our churches seem content to live off of the capital of the past without having to return for themselves to the streams that fed the great renewals of apostolic faith and practice in the past. It is not enough to invoke the slogans of the Reformation and to settle for the pristine confession of the five points of Calvinism. We need to recover the fullness of biblical faith and practice in our own time and place. So this phrase, Sempor Reformanda, does get to the heart of true spirituality because on the one hand, it reminds us that our piety, our practice, our doctrine must always be reformed according to the Word of God. We make no apologies to look backward, to look backward at great doctrines of the faith, statements of the faith, thinkers of the past, learning even from those who are of that great democracy of the dead. But at the same time, on the other hand, Semper Reformanda means we're not simply in an archaeological mode, just trying to discover what people used to think or how to interpret texts just to interpret texts, but that the Word of God might have a bearing upon our lives today. And so, in your studies, in your commitment to Christ, we must consider what it really means to constantly reassess, recommit according to the Word of God. I was just several weeks ago wrapping up a series over the summer on the parables of the kingdom at our church. Now I'm moving into Genesis in the morning and Second Peter in the evening, but I was preaching the end of Matthew chapter 13, where after Jesus tells these parables, then he goes and he preaches in Nazareth, his hometown. And he's met there with an initial level of astonishment. They know his reputation precedes him, and they know that he's worked miracles. But then it has this amazing statement, they took offense at him. The Greek is scandalizo, from which we get our word scandalized. They took offense at him, and they, they, they started to murmur to one another. Don't we know his father, the carpenter, and his mother, Mary, and aren't his, his brothers and sisters here with us? They were so familiar with Jesus that they could not really see who he was. They knew him as a boy who looked just like them, who had a name just like them. Uh, I remember reading a scholarly book several years ago which pointed out that scholars have looked at bone boxes and, and ancient documents from Israel in the first century, and they've compiled what were the most common names. Now, in most of our context, we hear Jesus. Jesus, there's just something about that name. It's just Jesus. I mean, it just sounds, but it was one of the you know, top five male names. It was Mike, Jason, Tim. Somehow Tim the Messiah seems, I don't know if it's working, but that was Jesus. It didn't have a special ring to them. He didn't look any different. It wasn't that he walked around in a white sash and had sort of a, a halo about him all the time. He just looked like any other Middle Eastern Jew and had a name like them and came from a, 
a family that they all knew in a little small podunk town. And so when he came back to Lazarus, they were too familiar with him. Eh, I, I don't know. Who does, who does this guy think he is? And there is always this danger for those who have the privilege of learning much about Christ, of having a background where you've heard of Jesus for a long time. That's some of you, not all of you. To have the privilege of being at a place like this, to spend years thinking about great thoughts and great ideas, not only of the Bible, but in all of human learning, but doing it under the auspices and the banner of Christ, that we would be so familiar with Him, that it would breed not an intensity of love and devotion, but of contempt or indifference. Now, I don't know if I'm actually getting the science here correct. One of your professors can tell me I'm, I'm probably not. But as it was explained to me when I was your age, so I went off to college and it, we didn't have COVID, but I had to get tested for tuberculosis and just a standard thing before you head off to college. And to my surprise, I tested positive. <coughs> no, I'm feeling better now. I didn't actually have active TB, but it was a latent strand or something in me. And so I needed to take some medicine for a certain amount of time and it would build up some sort of sheath around it so I wouldn't actually catch the, the real thing or it wouldn't develop into active TB. But they were very adamant. You need to, you need to take this, this, the whole duration of it uh, because whatever you're getting is some little bit of the real thing actively so that your body builds up its defense mechanisms. That's how medicine works sometimes. You get just a little bit of the, the real thing. Years ago, I had to take allergy shots, and they give you a shot every single week, a little bit of all the stuff that you're allergic to so that your body can develop an appropriate response so that you know how to handle hair and dogs and cats and, and grass. Jesus can be a little bit like that. And the danger is that we get just enough of Jesus in our lives to inoculate us against the real thing. And so to be in the position you're in, in a place like this, is one of the most privileged positions anywhere on the planet. I really mean it. And it's incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. Uh, and I, my kids are in the same kind of position. They, have, uh, they go to church morning and evening on Sunday. They go to a Christian school. They get Bible classes. It's such an amazing privilege that they have. And there's also a danger that you get just enough of Jesus to inoculate you against the real thing. And you hear, been there, done that, heard those sermons, read those passages, heard about those truths, and nothing really makes the, the distance from your head down to your heart. So simpor reformanda, not always reforming, but always being reformed according to the word of God is about fusing together in true spirituality, both anchoring ourselves in the past and ultimately not in the past for the past sake, but in the word of God so that in the present and in the future, we might be shaped and molded by this word. Think of that passage where Jesus encounters the scribe and is asking him, what's the greatest commandment? And then 
Jesus is very impressed with this scribe, and he says at the end, I think it's Mark chapter 12, I tell you the truth, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. You're not far. You're close. He had a right view of Jesus. He liked Jesus. He knew his Bible. He understood the greatest commandments. He wanted to be moral. And Jesus says, for all of that, you're close, but you're not in the kingdom. Until you know who I am as Lord and Savior. And so let us, as we think of true spirituality later this afternoon and tomorrow morning, commit ourselves to always be open before the Word of God, that Christ might challenge us, Christ might change us, and that Christ would give us greater and greater affection and passion for Him as our lives and our heads and our hearts are reformed always according to God's Word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for the opportunity to be with these brothers and sisters. In a place like this, we ask that you would strengthen us in our faith. You would give us grace to study, to learn, to grow, to be challenged by your word. That all things, especially in our hearts, Christ would have preeminence. We pray in his name. Amen.